Well, hello there, everyone. This is Paul Aronowitz with a very brief introduction because you're going to get more introduction after this one. Uh, this is a clinical problem solving podcast, and it is uh, part of the Mountain Lion mini series clinical problem solving cases, which are brought to you by three of our outstanding doctoring four students. So, those are fourth year students working on educational. Uh, projects here at UC Davis School of Medicine. So without further ado, I'll introduce you to Allison Ueda, who will be essentially emceeing our first clinical problem-solving case. Enjoy. Hi there, my name is Allison. I'm a fourth-year medical student at UC Davis, and I am working with two of my classmates on a mini-podcast series focused around some clinical problem-solving cases. Our idea behind doing this podcast series was to have an educational tool for students and residents to use, um, really to talk with some master clinicians about their clinical reasoning skills, how they think through problems, because I think that this is one of the challenges that we as students often encounter as we're honing our skills within clinical medicine. If you enjoy this mini-series and you want more educational opportunities within this realm. There are two existing podcasts. Um, one of them is called I Am Reasoning, and the other is called Morning Report, and they are a similar format, similar learning style. So I'm very lucky to have two wonderful guests here with me today, our clinicians who are gonna share their wisdom and their clinical reasoning skills. I'll have the two of you introduce yourselves and maybe throw in a fun fact as well. All right. Hi there. I'm Rashmi. I am one of the internal medicine chief residents here at UC Davis. I am going to be in the ho uh, hospitalist moving forward, and my interests are in medical education. So one fun fact, um, I grew up going to India all the time because that's where all my family is from. So one fine year, we went on a jungle trip together. So it was all of my family in one Jeep, and we got chased by um, some very upset elephants. And um, at the time, it was really funny, but looking back, we were very close to death. And um, I guess if we were all going to go down, we are all going to go down together. So that's the way to do it. We're glad to still have you with <laughs> us today. And I'm Dr. Paul Aronowitz. Um, I've been on these podcasts before, so you can listen on Mountain Lion to more of them. And uh, I am a clinician educator here at UC Davis School of Medicine. And my fun fact, well, Rashmi wanted me to talk about freight hopping, but I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> so I'll, uh, my fun fact is I was a baker before medical school, and my favorite thing to make was brioche. And one other thing I'll add about recommended podcasts is there's another one called the Clinical Problem Solvers, which uh, Robbie Giha and uh, Reza Manesh uh, raises at Johns Hopkins, former UCSF resident. And Robbie also is a former UCSF resident and clinician educator at the San Francisco VA. So check that one out. They have some great discussions on there, and it's a fun way to learn some more clinical reasoning. Perfect. Well, it's great to have you both here today. So the case that we're going to be discussing is from the New England Journal of Medicine. I've given you a couple tidbits um, to review, but uh, it's important to note that uh, our guests do not know the final diagnosis. This is supposed to be a natural process watching your reasoning unfold. So we've kept it a little bit vague for that reason. So I'll just start with our one-liner. The patient in this case is a 47-year-old homeless man. 
He presented to a local emergency department with intermittent pain and pins and needles sensation in his legs. So before we get into any more detail, I'd just like to hear your thoughts about what comes to mind when you hear that chief complaint. Yeah, so um, I think just to summarize his chief complaint, it sounds like some sort of neuropathy. Um, and based on his symptoms, it seems to be a sensory neuropathy. So when I think about neuropathy, I think about kind of three big buckets, sensory, motor, and autonomic. So as far as we know at this point, it's mostly a sensory um, neuropathy. Um, and then I'd like to know, you know, more about the time frame in which it happened, the location, its progression, which will all help us kind of narrow our differential. And then I think the, another important thing is the fact that it's a homeless gentleman, um, which kind of raises a lot of potential risk factors. So does this person have um, access to good nutrition, access to kind of medical care, and then what is their living situation like? Where do they live? Um, are they out and exposed in the world? All really good thoughts. Yeah, and I guess I would add that um, the fact that he's homeless may put him at risk for um, substances of abuse, namely alcohol and IV drugs. Mm -hmm. So I'd be wanting more information about that as well because alcohol and diabetes are the two most common causes of peripheral neuropathy. And mm -hmm. so far this has sort of got a hint of um, a peripheral neuropathy mm -hmm. as a presentation. Sure. And we will get more into his history. I'll start by giving you a little bit more information about his history of presenting illness. It is somewhat limited, but what we do know is that one month earlier, he had developed some paresthesias in his toes, and this had gradually spread to his shins. He denies any other new symptoms besides that. Uh, targeted review of systems was negative for low back pain, muscle weakness, bowel or bladder dysfunction, fever, chills, weight loss, nausea, vomiting, or fatigue. So I'm just curious to know with this additional information, what things are you thinking about or maybe thinking less about? So I think at this point, one thing that stands out, this first seems like an isolated neurologic problem, some sort of uh, peripheral neuropathy based on kind of the symptoms. So it doesn't seem at this point that there are other organ systems involved. And then I think it's really helpful to add more descriptive terms to our kind of already, our already kind of uh, framework that this is a sensory peripheral neuropathy. So it seems to be a subacute process, been going on for about a, a month, which I think helps narrow our differential or change what we're thinking is more likely. So when I think of more acute presentations of neuropathies, you think kind of trauma, compressive causes like compartment syndrome. Um, and then subacute has a whole big range of things, and chronic are kind of the things we think about that Dr. Ronowitz had mentioned, your alcohol, your diabetes, your nutritional deficiency. So if I were to kind of make um, a problem representation about this patient, I would say we have a middle-aged homeless gentleman presenting with a, a subacute, uh, symmetric, distal, progressive uh, sensory polyneuropathy. It seems based on his symptoms that he has multiple nerves involved, it's progressing upward and starting distally. So distal neuropathies tend to be more common than proximal neuropathies and it makes you think more of kind of toxic or metabolic processes. And the time frame also kind of fits with that as well. You think more inflammatory, metabolic, toxic, or nutritional um, type causes. And then thinking about possible specific causes, again, I think, you know, it's still pretty broad because we don't have a lot more specific information, but again, thinking in buckets. So uh, toxic causes, so alcohol, medications, we don't really know has this patient been on medications in the past. So common things that we think about are chemotherapy agents, um, 
uh, certain antimicrobials, so like fluoroquinolones, metronidazole, um, and then people who um, are on amiodarone, phenytoin, those sorts of things as well can cause issues. Um, and then heavy metals, so lead in particular, can also cause, be a toxic cause of neuropathies. Another big category is kind of our endocrine thing, so diabetes is the most common cause. Usually a sensory neuropathy can be sensory motor, also can cause kind of autonomic dysfunction. The time frame in this case seems a little too quick, but again, it has to start sometime, so maybe we're just catching it early on and this patient just hasn't sought medical care in a while. Um, and then thyroid dysfunction, you know, thyroid dysfunction has a lot of, kind of diffuse effects. And then thinking about um, uh, nutritional deficiencies, so the B vitamins, in particular B12, B6, um, and thiamine, we would consider, especially in a patient like him who we're not really sure about uh, what kind of his daily diet is. Um, and then, you know, you got your all smattering of other things. Um, so infections like Lyme and HIV can cause neuropathies. Um, certain malignancies, so multiple myeloma, perineoplastic syndromes, um, and then amyloid as well, something else to consider. Um, so yeah, so I think things are really broad at this point, but I think we've narrowed it down to kind of a sensory peripheral neuropathy. Yeah, I don't have too much to add to Rashmi's excellent differential diagnosis. <laughs> that was super complete. Um, the only thing I would add, and I think she already said this, was that the one month, it starting one month prior to presentation is really fairly concerning that he's got some kind of systemic process going on that we need to try and sort out and get to the bottom of. As she said, diabetes or alcohol, those types of things, that's going to be more slow onset. Um, you know, potentially gloves and stocking kind of uh, distribution. Um, but the fact that if he's to be believed and it started one month ago, we're going to want to be really careful in digging a little bit deeper than we might normally do uh, to try and find the etiology of this. Wonderful. Thanks for sharing your thoughts around that. I think it's great to take the approach of putting things into buckets in order to build a comprehensive differential. And the one thing that I was thinking about, too, is the significance of the lack of back pain and the lack of bowel and bladder symptoms because oftentimes when we're trying to characterize neurologic symptoms you want to know how far down that chain things are and so I was less concerned about something like a myelopathy or a radiculopathy after hearing that. Wonderful. So I'll move on and give you a little bit more about his history. He does have a past medical history of untreated hepatitis C as well as hypertension. He does not have any current medications or known allergies to medications. He has no family history of neuropathy or other neurologic disorders. And he, do, he does have a 52-pack year a history of smoking, rarely uses alcohol, and does have a 33-year history of IV heroin use. He is a current user, and he's not sexually active at this time. So with that information, anything stick out to you in particular? I think the lack of certain things kind of sticks out. So first, um, as far as we know, he doesn't have a history of diabetes, so that seems less likely. And he doesn't have a significant alcohol use history as well, which kind of makes that go lower on the differential as well. He has quite a profound history of IV drug use, which makes you wonder, is that contributing in some way to what's going on? And you know, his medications, doesn't seem like there are any culprit medications that he's been on, though it's hard to say what he may have been on in the past. Um, and the family history in terms of neuropathy sometimes can be helpful. There are certain hereditary neuropathies, um, like Charcot-Marie-Tooth, mm -hmm. but um, seems 
less likely um, at this point. So, you know, in my mind, I'm just keeping in the back of my mind, you know, he's pretty significant smoking history, maybe has a malignancy and a perineoplastic thing, and then this IV drug use, just, I don't know what to make of it yet, but just seems pretty significant. Right. Yeah, and I think that the, well, first of all, it's, it's sort of interesting that he has a 33-year history of <laughs> IV drug use, or heroin use specifically. Uh, it's not an even number, it's an odd number. Um, but is smoking is even number. It's 52 pack years. Um, anyway, so the the two things that the well actually uh, starting with the Hep C um, mm. uh, that that he has um, that does uh, bring to mind one possibility, and that would be uh, cryoglobulinemia, which uh, can definitely cause peripheral neuropathy, and uh, the hepatitis C would be his risk factor for that. So that's something depending on, as we go with his exam and so forth, we're gonna wanna be looking into uh, cryoglobulins to make sure he doesn't have um, that as an etiology. And then the smoking you know, brings to mind potentially perineoplastic causes. Um, the heroin use, you know, uh, a number of things, including things like secondary amyloid. But the other thing about the heroin use is it puts him at risk for HIV infection, depending on whether he's needle sharing or not, and um, so we're going to definitely want to get an HIV test because HIV infection can cause uh, peripheral neuropathy, usually when the CD4 count is 100 or below, but we should think about that. Yeah, those are all really great thoughts. Um, he does have some high-risk things in his history, and we'll definitely learn a little bit more about those moving forward. I'll give you some physical exam findings now to help guide our thinking process. So in terms of his vitals, he was afebrile. He was a little hypertensive at 170 over 110. His heart rate was 68 and his respiratory rate was 20. He was a chronically ill-appearing man. He was alert and oriented to person, place, and time. And a cardiac, pulmonary, abdominal, and skin exam um, were all unremarkable for him. He did have a few pertinent uh, findings on his neuro exam. He had an unsteady gait and his ambulation was limited due to pain, and he had decreased sensation to pinprick, light touch, and temperature on his lower extremities bilaterally. Notably, his cranial nerves, um, strength, and deep tendon reflexes were intact, and his sensation to vibration and proprioception were also intact. So I know that you both gave a really comprehensive, rich differential already, knowing that we have some objective findings and lack of other findings are there ways in which you're thinking of narrowing that differential now? So I think with a lot of cases with neurologic findings, we're always trying to localize where is the lesion. And so I think some of these find it, findings help us localize what type of nerves may be involved. So he seems to have some difficulties with temperature sensation, light touch, and to pain with difficulty with sensation to pinprick, which um, tends to be uh, sensations that are transmitted via small fibers. So it suggests that he has some sort of small fiber neuropathy. It's interesting that he has an unsteady gait, which makes you wonder, is this a sensory problem, like he has difficulty with proprioception, or is it a motor dysfunction, or is there something else kind of going on as well? But I think you know, it suggests that there's definitely some sort of small fiber neuropathy. And so small fiber neuropathies, things to think about. So thyroid dysfunction, medications, nutritional deficiencies, HIV, hep C. So all of kind of the similar, same things we were thinking about before. I think some things that seem less likely, um, 
things like vasculitides tend to be more motor neuron, um, lead toxicity, so certain infections like Lyme disease tend to be um, less likely to be small fiber things. So I think it helps us localize maybe a little bit. I think moving forward though, if I were to kind of do more work up on him, I would still keep my kind of lab testing pretty broad. Yeah, and I think the only thing, other thing I'd add is um, the unsteady gait, I agree, could just be from a peripheral neuropathy, um, but we'd probably want a little more information mm -hmm. about his neurologic exam, you know, mm -hmm. what was his Romberg, mm -hmm. you know, what was that, what did, what did they mean by unsteady gait? Was it a wide base gait or shuffling gait or, you know, was he kind of just falling over? And also he's having pain, so it was the pain playing into his unsteady gait as well. But I think that a, um, a better cerebellar exam um, and, you know, tandem walking, if he could even do that, potentially would be useful to know here. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think a lot of times some of the specifics in the neurologic exam are oftentimes overlooked, and you do highlight a good point that they are oftentimes important in elucidating um, differences in terms of etiology there. I know that you had already mentioned a few tests that you might want to do for him based on his history. It sounds like HIV testing, cryoglobulin testing would be up there. Is there anything else that you would want to get in your initial panel of workup? I would probably add some of his B vitamins, so we always think of B12, but maybe also things like thiamine, um, B6. Um, heavy metals would be something also that we wouldn't want to miss. Um, and then I would probably get an A1C on him too, just to see in TSHs are kind of low-hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think those would be pretty much the ones I'd be looking for as well. Um, the heavy metals testing, I think, given, again, the, the subacute nature of this and the fact that he's homeless, we don't know where this patient was, like what location in the country but certainly there's been a lot of lead um, focus like in the upper Midwest, like in Michigan. So if he's living, living next to a river and drinking water directly out of a river or something like that, or in a heavily lead contaminated environment, that would be a useful mm -hmm. um, test as well. Um, the one other, I'll, I'll save it for later actually. Okay, <laughs> I think those are great ideas. So we did get some lab work done. Um, the first thing was a CBC. His white count was within normal range at 9,000. He was mildly anemic with a hemoglobin of 10.3. And his mean corpuscular volume was sort of at the high end of normal at 98. His platelets were um, 241,000. He had a, a comprehensive metabolic panel done as well. His electrolytes and liver function tests were both within normal range. Um, he did get one of the B vitamins done. So he had a vitamin B12 level. And that was actually um, on the upper end of normal, and he had a folate level done that was within normal range as well. He had HIV antigen antibody testing that was negative, as well as a syphilis RPR, which we didn't specifically mention, but I guess when you think about dorsal column involvement and the neuropathy associated with that, that was probably on the mind of the clinicians. His cryoglobulins were negative, and he did have a urine and serum uh, talk screen as well, those were both negative. The case did not specify, however, if heavy metals were included in that initial workup. And I'm going to bet that they probably didn't do heavy metals if sure. they didn't specifically talk about it. 
Um, and then the other thing with the cryoglobulins, it's important to know, like back in the day when we used to have to draw labs as, as residents and interns, um, you actually had to, when you drew a cryoglobulin, uh, I can't remember which color tube it went in, but you had to put it in your armpit to keep it warm while you walked it to the lab. And I think these days the lab techs pro probably are instructed to keep it in a, in a warm bath, um, basically. But if the the sample cools off in transit to the lab, you can get a false negative cryoglobulin level. Right. So one of the things you always want to question is if the cryoglobulins are purportedly normal, uh, was the test done correctly? And in some cases, we'll repeat it if we're not sure. But here, for now, I guess we'll take it as being negative. A true negative. Mm -hmm. But it's important to note that there is a degree of potential error with processing there. I think one of the questions I had for the two of you is if you felt that maybe an SPEP or UPEP would be helpful if cryoglobulinemia is on the differential, do you think that having this negative uh, test is sufficient, or do you think that you would want to explore further? I would say generally in uh, patients who I am struggling to find a cause of their neuropathy, I tend to send an SPEP and a UPEP. Um, it's a pretty easy test to collect urine. You want to do both urine and serum. So I probably, it probably would be something to consider, especially in this patient who, after these labs, I don't think we really elucidated a potential cause, and you know, we wouldn't want to miss, get, miss if he had some underlying um, kind of um, hyperparaproteinemia process. Yeah, I, I totally agree. As Rashmi mentioned earlier, um, multiple myeloma is in a differential mm -hmm. diagnosis, and Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia also uh, is on the differential diagnosis, and so you you would definitely want to get those. And and again, it's a it's a man who comes in and he's already fairly debilitated from his illness, mm -hmm. and I'd feel really bad if I missed something like that. And he's the right age group for it as well. So. Good, it's good to hear your thoughts around that. We unfortunately don't have the results of those tests for you, but I think it's good to to think through. And we we could also, by the way, look at his mm -hmm. uh, protein gap. Yeah. Um, which I don't think that we, we had in here. But if he had a wide protein gap, that would be even more of an indicator to, to check um, those studies. That's a really good point. And then my other question is, if you at this point would order him an EMG and nerve conduction studies? I think generally, excuse me, that's uh, probably the next step in someone who's had a pretty thorough workup. Um, and I think sometimes it's challenging to get in the hospital, which I think can be a barrier, especially in a patient like this where um, we don't know if you'll have consistent medical care. Um, but it can be helpful to help distinguish, you know, where exactly, kind of localizing the lesion again. Is it this an axonal process or a demyelinating process? Mm -hmm. So something definitely that we would do to kind of further localize the lesion. Great. So I'll give you a little bit more information about how the case unfolded from here. At this point, with the initial workup, the patient was considered to have an idiopathic peripheral neuropathy, and he was discharged from the emergency department with prescriptions for gabapentin, amitriptyline, and morphine for his pain. Um, he did see a gastroenterologist who prescribed him treatment for his hepatitis C, and then he was given um, antihypertensives for his high blood pressure as well. Unfortunately, his pain and paresthesias did continue to progress, he did end up getting um, needle electromyography, and that revealed a very severe axonal sensory motor polyneuropathy in the lower extremities bilaterally. He ended up having 
a sural nerve biopsy based on the findings of his nerve conduction study, which showed uh, absent action potentials there. And that revealed, again, axonal degeneration and extensive loss of both large and small myelinated and unmyelinated fibers. Is there anything, any thoughts that you guys have about that follow-up? You know, axonal neuropathies are more common than demyelinating neuropathies. So demyelinating things is when you think about like Guillain-Barre, things like that. Um, I think in my mind, it doesn't necessarily help narrow specifically what's going on at this point. Yeah, I, th I think it's just confirming what we probably yeah. already knew and yeah. are getting the important parts of the workup done. But yeah. for me, it doesn't really help tell me what's causing this. Yeah. The idiopathic label is sort of interesting. There's usually not a, l a it's usually not on the list of causes of, <laughs> <laughs> of peripheral neuropathy. So, you know, I think they were, they thought they were doing their best and they just labeled it, we don't know which is what idiopathic is basically saying. I agree. It is interesting, and it seems like they did give him a host of new medications, and it doesn't sound like they really were able to address his symptoms. Mm -hmm. So interestingly, this patient did represent nine months later, and this time he had a new rash. And I do have a picture for both of you to look at. I know our audience can't see it, so I'll describe um, what was seen. He had a new pyritic violaceous plaques, and they were located in a photo-distributed manner on the dorsal aspects of his arms, legs, and upper chest. And if you have any other interesting things that you see from the picture, feel free to add them in. Um, so I think first the question is, is this something that's related to the process that's causing his neuropathy, or is this something uh, separate? And so I think first, kind of thinking through this rash independently, the fact that it's photodistributed, I think, helps narrow what may be causing it. So big things that I would think about. So given his history of hep C, thinking of porphyria, in particular porphyria cutanea tarda, um, but it tends to be more of a bullous rash than one that's plaque-like in nature. Other things that are uh, photodistributed, so lupus, uh, cutaneous manifestations of lupus, dermatomyositis, and kind of some nutritional deficiencies as well can lead to rashes that are in a photodistributed nature. So, you know, porphyria can sometimes cause neuropathies, so maybe those go together, but it tends to be more of a motor neuropathy, which in our patient it seems to be more of a sensory neuropathy. And then I still think, you know, nutritional deficiencies high on our list, so our B vitamins, again, you know, we didn't check for B1, B6, um, B3, he, um, it appears to be based on what we know, he's still homeless, so again, may not have kind of good access to good nutrition. Yeah, I think the only other things I'd add um, to Rashmi's differential for this rash, um, uh, sarcoidosis can mm -hmm. cause all different mm -hmm. kinds of rashes, and one of those types is described as violaceous. Um, However, it's sort of more around the nares of the nose in that situation. And I don't know that it's um, a photosensitive eruption. The cases I've seen of sarcoid with skin reactions were under clothed areas as well as in sun exposed areas. And I'm not sure how I would tie, although it should always be on the list of every differential diagnosis, I'm not sure how I would tie sarcoidosis necessarily into this uh, particular presentation. So um, I think that's probably the only other thing I'd add. The, the, uh, 
Porphyria cutanea tarda, um, usually that's more of a bolus eruption. Um, and it's again going to be in sun exposed areas. Um, it's thought to be due to a selective deficiency in uroprofinogen decarboxylase. So in patients who have liver disease is who you're going to see that in usually. History of hep C is the classic one um, you guys will get on the boards someday. Um, and, uh, and then things like uh, cirrhosis and such. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, this does not, to me, look like a classic porphyria cutanea tarda. I also don't know if it fully explains the neuropathy if we're trying to tie the two together, but I agree that it is interesting to think about some infiltrative processes or vasculitic process, processes when we're trying to explain this new rash that he has. So they did decide to get some additional workup in light of his new skin findings. I think they were maybe thinking similar to you, Dr. Aronowitz, about the potential for a false negative with cry cryoglobulin testing. So they specifically repeated it. It was still negative. They got a repeat HIV test and RPR, knowing that those can also become positive over time, and those were still negative. They did do um, a limited uh, rheumatologic workup as well. I know we talked about a few different conditions like lupus. He had anti-Rho, anti-Law, anti-Smith, and anti-RNP antibodies, which were all negative. They got some blood cultures as well, thinking about an infectious process, and those showed no growth. So at this point, in their attempt to try to improve the rash, he was treated sequentially for a few different things. He received treatment for scabies with no improvement, and then tinea corporis with no improvement, and then finally a treatment for cellulitis, and still did not get any lasting relief from his rash. So kind of a curious case, and it doesn't seem like uh, the clinicians at this point have found a, a treatment that is really able to address his symptoms fully. Anything else that you want to add before we move on with the case? The only thing I would add is, you know, I think um, rashes are always hard as internists, and I think he's gotten treatment for three different things, and this may be where I asked for a little bit of help from my dermatology friends, and you might need a biopsy to help kind of further elucidate what's going on. Yeah, I think for sure I get a, a biopsy. Um, I, you know, I think it's actually good that they repeated the HIV and the RPR. I mean, um, syphilis can cause a peripheral neuropathy. Um, I've not seen a case of it doing that. It, that's considered neurosyphilis, basically. But um, certainly being careful because we are having epidemic proportions of mm -hmm. syphilis in the United States. Um, and again, as you said, Allison, it's good they repeated the cryoglobulins because it may not have been done right the first time. And he has hepatitis C and he has a peripheral neuropathy. So it's good to be skeptical uh, about that. I think that the, the uh, anti-Rho and LA um, probably, so Sjogren's can cause a peripheral neuropathy as well. So they were probably thinking about that as a possibility. And then, you know, of course, lupus can do lots of things. Um, the, I, it makes me chuckle that he was treated for scabies, tinea corporis, and cellulitis. <laughs> they obviously were just trying to help the poor guy. Mm -hmm. um, but scabies, this does not look like. I've never heard of scabies being violaceous in appearance. Um, it can fool you for sure. But of course, you'd be looking in the webs of the fingers, um, uh, basically for burrows. And then potentially, if there were suspicious areas, actually doing scrapings, um, looking under a microscope and seeing if you can see the little mites dancing around. It really makes your skin crawl even seeing that under a microscope. 
but um, they probably maybe could have done that before they treated him for scabies, but maybe they were just making sure that they threw the kitchen sink at him to make him better. I agree that the distribution and uh, characteristics of his rash are maybe making us think about some different things. So unfortunately for this poor patient, uh, the saga continued. Eight months later, he returned to the emergency department, and this time he had new diarrhea, dehydration, and leg ulcerations as well, which he attributed to scratching from the pruritus. He had no interval change in the rash or his lower extremity paresthesias uh, and pain. A little bit more information about the diarrhea. He didn't have hematochesia, no abdominal pain. He didn't have any constipation or bloating, nausea or vomiting, and they did get some stool samples. They were negative for C. diff, leukocytes, um, ova and parasites, and occult blood. So now we have this growing constellation of symptoms that involves skin findings, this neuropathy, which has been fairly persistent, uh, and new GI symptoms as well. What are your thoughts around that? I liked your summary. You did my problem representation for me. Um, so first of all, again, thinking kind of independently, he has acute diarrhea, it appears, without any red flag symptoms. And so first, you know, the most common causes of acute diarrhea tend to be infectious um, and tend to be self-limited. Um, but then it also makes you wonder, you know, is it something secondary to what we did? You know, he got antibiotics for cellulitis. It's hard to say how recently. So, you know, I would check a C. diff as well, something that you don't want to miss. And then I think it just comes back to, you know, it's another organ system. Um, does this all tie together? So, um, again, thinking about a dermatitis, diarrhea, and then um, a neuropathy. And... Um, you know, is the diarrhea maybe some representation of it, like an autonomic neuropathy, neuropathic process? Um, or is there something kind of else going on? Yeah, I agree. And, and I think that the challenge here is figuring out whether the diarrhea is related to what he presented with months and months and months mm -hmm. before, namely the peripheral neuropathy, and whether it's related to his skin lesions or not. Um, if we go with Occam's razor, this is all related to one another, and we're trying to use parsimony of diagnoses. If we go with Hickam's dictum, Dr. Hickam was this uh, chair of, I think, either surgery or medicine at Duke um, quite a while back, and he said that patients can have as many damn diseases as they please. <laughs> um, so it's possible he's got more than one thing going on. I don't think so. I think we're going to be able to unify the diagnosis but it's worth thinking about what's going on there. The other, the other thing is you begin to wonder, like, is there some way to tie it together and it actually he's got an infiltrative disease like amyloidosis um, or something like um, Whipple's disease caused by T. Whippoli, I think, mm -hmm. um, which is treatable with antibiotics. Uh, but he doesn't really have the classic symptoms of abdominal bloating and such. Um, and... I don't think that's probably what's going on, but it's worth sort of hovering that in the differential diagnosis at this point. So that's a great thought. I also, what came to mind was potentially something like uh, inflammatory bowel disease, which can sometimes have skin findings as well, but I don't know if pyoderma gangrenosum or erythema nodosum would necessarily present in the same way that his skin rash did. So it doesn't seem like a perfect fit. The other thing that I was thinking about is that he's been started on quite a few different medications over the course of this case, and um, I do think it's relevant to note that some of those were stopped over time. 
his rash has persisted, his GI symptoms don't seem to be temporally associated with those medications. So I do think uh, it's important to think about a drug interaction with some of his new symptoms, but doesn't seem to quite explain it either. I'm glad you brought up drug in or a kind of an iatrogenic possible cause, because sometimes we forget about that. And thinking about someone who is a chronic heroin user, maybe he stopped using heroin and this is all part of a withdrawal symptom, that you'd expect more than just diarrhea. Right. Well, he was started on some more medications <laughs> at this point, since we're on that topic. He was treated symptomatically with loperamide for the diarrhea, and then he was also given oral levofloxacin and uh, IV nafcillin due to the thought that it might be uh, infection of his neuropathic ulcerations. Um, he was having some weakness and just general decomposition at that point, so he was discharged to a nursing home. And interestingly, he stayed there for about six weeks. He became intermittently altered during that stay. He had some violent outbursts, which were new and uncharacteristic for him. He seemed confused at times, and he was uh, diagnosed with depression at the nursing home. He was prescribed fluoxetine, but it didn't improve uh, his behavioral symptoms. And this is really curious to me, something that we haven't encountered yet in this case and is definitely new. Um, what are your thoughts around his new symptoms? So common things being common, I think whenever we think about an altered patient who's in not their kind of normal environment, you always worry about delirium. Um, see a lot in our patients here in the hospital and patients who go to skilled nursing facilities. So that would be kind of top on my consideration first, so doing all my delirium precautions. Um, and then you worry about is this a primary psychiatric disease, which there's some suggestion that they were worried, some involvement of depression, maybe with some psychosis. Um, and then the other part is can we put this all together? So in my mind, again, kind of going back to our problem representation, we have this gentleman with a peripheral neuropathy, with dermatitis, with diarrhea, and now, you know, some sort of mental status changes, dare I say, some sort of dementia-like process. And so when I think about it like that, um, it kind of fits with an illness script that I know for, um, you know, niacin deficiency or with pellagra. So that would be something else that I would consider. Um, and then I also just worry about all the other things that cause people to um, be altered. Um, it's interesting that's more of kind of an acute process. So perforia definitely can cause people to be altered. Um, other vit vitamin deficiencies like thiamine as well. And then also not forgetting about kind of our general other things that cause people to be altered. So um, I use like the move stupid mnemonic, but just making sure we're not missing all of those things. But there's really no suggestion that he has any sort of electrolyte abnormality and underlying infection. Um, so um, those would kind of be where I was thinking. Yeah, it's interesting about the, because you bring, brought up the nutritional deficiencies, and I agree that potentially um, uh, pellagra or niacin deficiency is in the differential diagnosis. What confuses me a little bit is why he would have that if he's been in the hospital and in a nursing or a skilled nursing facility. Um, there's niacin in a lot of the regular foods we eat that would come on a tray in the hospital or in a skilled nursing facility. Um, and while it does sort of clinically potentially fit, um, his reason for having it is a little perplexing if that's what it turns out to be. Sure. And I don't know if this is any help, but I think it's hard to appreciate the spans of time that lapsed in between all of these different hospital visits. Um, but he has been really going through this for about five years by the time we get to where we are now. And so 
it doesn't sound like a good dietary history was obtained or is available to us. And so it is hard to know what his nutritional status was in between those hospitalizations and if that was enough to maybe cause some deficiencies that haven't fully been worked up. But, you, but you'd still almost think it would get corrected when he got regular <laughs> food because right. it's in, you know, right. nice and in beans and chicken and red meat and um, I'd have to go to a textbook for all the other things that it's in. But it's, it's pretty, it's around us. Um, yeah. And, but anyway, so it's just sort of an interesting thing. Well, it sounds like you two are honing in on what you feel like is a, a diagnosis that is unifying for his specific constellation of symptoms. We do have one final chapter to this case. He returns one last time to the emergency department. This is over a year later, so I mentioned over five years after his initial presentation. The diarrhea is persistent, the rash is persistent, um, but now it involves a new area. It's on his upper chest and anterior neck. And Dr. Aronowitz, I know that you have a particular proclivity for clinical images, so maybe you'd be so kind as to walk us through what you're seeing in this picture of his rash. I will put my glasses on, which the radio audience can't see. <laughs> but uh, Yeah, so it's a necklace-like um, lesion around his neck. It looks um, erythematous. It's hard to actually tell the width, but it really does look like the width of a necklace it looks hyperkeratotic um, and scaling, and um, it's, I don't know if it's on the back of his neck, but it's certainly on the front part of his neck. And does that particular distribution ring any bells or bring anything else to mind for you? So if we continue on our niacin deficient train, there is something called Casal's necklace in patients who do have uh, B3 deficiencies where they get this exact type of rash and distribution like a necklace. So um, if we're going to commit to our diagnosis, then that would kind of be what I would think about as well. Yeah, that would be sort of the classic pattern recognition, seeing that mm -hmm. in the context of this patient's illness. Um, so Gas Gaspar Casal was this guy in, um, I think he was, in, he was from Spain, in the um, early 1700s, and he worked for like King Ferdinand or something like that. And he's credited with describing the Casals. Sometimes it's called Casals necklace, and sometimes it's called Casals collar. In this picture, it looks like a necklace, so we should call it Casals necklace. <laughs> All right, that's a great history lesson we're getting today. I agree that it seems to provide some supporting evidence for what we've come back to a few times now, which is the possibility of a nutritional deficiency. So they finally did get the skin biopsy that you had suggested earlier, Rashmi. It did show um, findings that were perhaps suggestive of psoriasis and eczema, but it was non-diagnostic overall. And then they were thinking along similar lines, so they got a serum niacin level. It was undetectable. And interestingly, no other micronutrient levels were assessed. So other than his normal B12, it's hard to know if it was just the one deficiency or maybe more of the B vitamins, which you brought up earlier. Um, no dietary history was ever obtained. Uh, he was treated with oral niacin at 500 milligrams daily. Uh, three months later, his rash had nearly completely resolved. His cognition was back to baseline and he did not have any more violent outbursts and no more diarrhea. Interestingly, the advanced neuropathy that was really his chief complaint and initial reason for coming in did continue to persist 
over time. Very interesting case. I think there are, there's still some maybe some lingering questions. I think for me, when I think about a neuropathy, I don't always think about niacin as causing a neuropathy. And it makes me wonder um, if there was some other micronutrient that he was deficient in. So B6 um, deficiency, um, and B6 in particular is important for the conversion of tryptophan into niacin. So B6 deficiency could also lead to a niacin deficiency. So it makes you wonder if he had some sort of B6 deficiency in addition. Um, carcinoid as well kind of redirects where tryptophan is getting converted. And so you get more serotonin as opposed to niacin. Um, can also lead to niacin deficiency. He doesn't really have any suggestions of that. But I think to Dr. Aronitz's point, it really makes you wonder why he had niacin deficiency as someone who, for a period of time, had access to food with niacin in it. Um, so it would make you wonder if he had some sort of underlying malabsorptive process. So niacin is absorbed in the ileum and the jejunum, and if he had something related to that. So like you had mentioned Crohn's disease before, but he really has no other symptoms to suggest that. Um, I don't know if he was on a very restrictive diet, um, like extreme vegetarianism or something that where he would be eating eggs and meat and things that had been enriched in niacin. Um, but it, yeah, it really makes you wonder. I think it's really interesting that how quickly people get better when they are given replacement with niacin. Yeah, the other thing to consider, which we shouldn't consider in him because he's not a pediatrics patient, is something called Hartnup disease, which is, um, from what I remember, is this uh, defect in absorbing amino acids. So tryptophan doesn't get absorbed, and you therefore don't produce niacin. Um, he's way too old for that, and it seems like he would have presented about 45 years earlier. Um, but I'm fascinated by this case in the sense that um, he clearly has pellagra, um, which did you want to talk oh, yeah, about we were, what pellagra means? We were trying to figure out the history of pellagra. So it's an Italian <laughs> word that means rough skin, wow. which fits with the symptomatology. Wonderful. Yeah, and once you start treating this disease with the niacin, the skin changes will last still for weeks to months and eventually go away. But the, the rest of his symptoms, not surprisingly, they, they start getting better within two to five days, um, which is still bothers me if he was being fed. Mm -hmm. I'm sure he was fed in the hospital and he was fed in the skilled nursing facility. Why, I wonder if he fluctuated and maybe got somewhat better during those periods of time. Then when he left the hospital, he got worse because he went back to his nutritional deficient state. Um, but it would, it would be kind of nice to have like a day-by-day -day or month-by-month -month kind of recounting of, of his history because I think there's probably more to this um, given the stuttering nature. And, and pellagra can go on for years. Um, and the, of course the four Ds, Rashmi was going to mention what those stood for of, of pellagra. Yeah, so uh, the four big Ds is the dermatitis. We kind of talked about the rash. He had the very classic, violaceous, plaque-like, sun-distributed rash with the Casals necklace. Diarrhea, which tends to be a combination of a malabsorptive problem and a proctitis problem. They tend to get pretty significant mucosal atrophy and so get a lot of diarrhea. Um, the dementia, which is kind of a range of symptoms, I guess more than dementia, maybe an altered mental status or altered level of consciousness, so things like aggression, which he had, and confusion. And then the final D, the worst D, which is death. Um, so I think, you know, when we were building our problem representations, those pieces started to fall in place, and I think that really helped 
kind of lead us to this particular diagnosis. I think this is a great lesson about vitamins because we don't think about nutritional things enough in American medicine. And yeah. I think, you know, occasionally we get a case here of scurvy, somebody who has an undetectable vitamin C level, and here's a case of pellagra and such. Um, and there's those other diseases that can cause pellagra, <clears throat> like carcinoid, for the reasons that Rashmi mentioned. Um, so it's, I think what we're going to see is going to tend to be another disease causing the pellagra rather than someone having no access to niacin. It's a fascinating case. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for your thoughts around that. I think there's a lot of really great uh, learning pearls here. One is to always have nutritional deficiencies in the back of your mind. I think they're another thing that are oftentimes overlooked and can present with seemingly disparate symptoms that end up being related. I think that you both raise a really good point about the relationship between tryptophan and niacin and to also be thinking about diseases that either affect tryptophan metabolism or absorption and how that can secondarily cause niacin deficiency. One thing that was a little bit um, unsettling for me was the neuropathy mm -hmm. because it's not something that I classically think about with uh, niacin deficiency and the dementia is the main, the classic uh, neurologic symptom seen in patients and so I did do a little bit of reading about it. It does seem like there can be a very wide range of neuropsychiatric symptoms, including peripheral neuropathy, but also things like anxiety, depression, even hallucinations. So that range is wide, but I do think that it might be of benefit to do more workup around other B vitamins, because I think it could be probable that he might have a thiamine deficiency or B6 deficiency that might explain the neuropathy a little bit more. It seems to be the one thing that doesn't quite fit as classically with his diagnosis. Yeah, and I guess you could pose that maybe the neuropathy was caused by another disease, and that disease is unrelated to what he had sure. in the end. Sure, sure. Um, it's hard to go that route, though, given the fact that he was only 56 when he presented. Right, also a good thought. But we're sticking with Occam's razor today, right, yes. Dr. Ronowitz? <laughs> Wonderful. Um, any final thoughts before we wrap up? All right. I appreciate you both taking the time to join me and talk through this clinical case. It was exciting and educational, uh, and I really appreciate it. It was our pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you.